Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Why is there such hostility against the idea of penal substitutionary atonement? And it's those who, who reject this doctrine who then would say they would accuse those who hold to the doctrine of believing in a God who is guilty of cosmic child abuse. Oh, you're painting God to be a moral monster. That hatred for penal substitutionary atonement lies in the fact that people do not want to believe in a God who will punish sin. That's really what it's all about. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Isaiah chapters 52 through 53. Now here's Pastor Brian. Behold my servant. So here once again, the servant of the Lord and he shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, extolled, and be very high. He shall be exalted and extolled. Ultimately, he shall be lifted up very high. This is a reference to the crucifixion. How do we know that? Because Jesus refers to it in John's gospel. He says, if the Son of Man is lifted up, And he's alluding back to this very passage right here. And so he will be uh, extolled. He will be lifted up. He will be very high. And then just as many were were astonished at you. So uh, the prophet speaking to the nation, just as uh, people were astonished at the nation because of their um, the punishment and the judgment that came upon them because of their revolt against God and so forth. But then it says, So his visage, speaking of the servant of the Lord, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And so what this is saying is that people are going to marvel at the fact that through his suffering, this servant is going to be so abused that he would not resemble a human being. When Jesus was taken and abused by the high priest and his men and by the Roman soldiers and by Herod and his troops, they beat him beyond recognition. Remember, we read in the previous chapter, chapter 50, remember we read where the Lord speaking again through the prophetic voice says, I did not turn my back from those who struck me or from the smiters And I did not turn my face from those who plucked out the beard. I did not turn my face from the shame and the spitting. So we know from the New Testament accounts, although it doesn't tell us that his beard was plucked out there, we know from Isaiah that it was. But we do know that they took and they would put a leather sack over the head of Jesus and they would beat him with reeds. And you can only imagine how this would disfigure his face. And that's what the prophecy is referring to. And so verse 15 says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Another translation is so shall he startle many nations. And it, and it would be startling in a sense. But 
um, most agree that sprinkle is the better idea because you see the sprinkling, sprinkling is a reference to atonement. It's the sprinkling of the blood. You go all the way back to the Mosaic system. And what were the priests to do? They were to sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat and that would bring atonement. And so it's through this, this marring, it's through this beating, it's through this suffering that he will ultimately sprinkle, make atonement for, wash and cleanse many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. So there is a day coming If you were to go around the world today and if you were to take every leader of every nation and you were to poll them on their perspective, attitude, or whatever it is toward Jesus Christ, you would find a variety of different perspectives undoubtedly, but you would rarely find the perspective of of reverence and awe and worship and acknowledging of, of who he really is in his glory. You know, some might give lip service to, well, you know, Jesus was a good, good person. You know, maybe they're, maybe the country, they're president or the prime minister or something over. Uh, maybe they have a Christian history, so they would have some sort of a connection. Maybe, you know, in, a, in maybe like a Hindu country or even a Buddhist or an Islamic country, you would find either a total ignorance or sometimes even a hostility. But Isaiah says there's coming a time when kings... When it says that they will shut their mouth at him, it, what it's referring to is they're going to be astounded. They're going to be speechless. Everyone's going to be speechless. This is the savior of the world. This one that we have mocked, ridiculed, rejected. This one that we have scorned and shunned. This is the true king. Everyone's going to be speechless in the future. And so as we go on into now the 53rd. But you see, this is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks because the chapter should have begun at verse 13. But for whatever reason, they didn't begin it here when they did the chapter breaks. But we're just following through now. Who has believed our report and to whom has, notice, the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember verse 10? The Lord has made bare his holy arm. Who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the Messiah, the suffering servant, he's referred to as the arm of the Lord. And of course, the arm of the Lord, the picture there is, this is a picture of strength. And so this is God demonstrating his strength, his power through this weak and suffering servant. So verse two, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. No form or comeliness. Comeliness is an old word. We don't really use it too much today. The idea is majesty. So he has no impressive form. So in other words, visually, there's nothing, there was nothing about Jesus that caused him visually to stand out from anybody else. He, just, he looked just like anybody else. All of the medieval art that put a halo around the head of Jesus or, you know, did in some way tried to make him divine, they, they really 
were misrepresenting him um, un- unintentionally, probably for the most part. But they, but they, it was a misrepresentation because there was nothing about Jesus in his physical form that was attractive. There was no beauty, it says, that we should desire him. And then it says this, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Now, notice this is a prophecy that is not gonna be fulfilled for 700 years, but it's spoken of in the past tense. And so Isaiah is speaking prophetically of the people in the future when the Jewish nation once again acknowledges their sin and embraces the Messiah, the Savior, this passage will tell them the whole story because this is exactly what they thought and even continue to think today. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Did not esteem him. The idea here is that they they saw him as utterly insignificant. And, and you know, it is true among Jewish people today. Now, there, there have been some, some changes in the past 10 or 15 years, even in Israel. And um, there is more of an interest probably today. My Jewish friends tell me this. There's more of an interest today in Israel concerning Jesus as the Messiah or as some somebody important than there's ever been in anybody's uh, living memory uh, from 1948 until now. And, um, and yet, in the majority of the population, uh, Jesus is completely insignificant. He just doesn't factor in when you think of the Jewish world, when you think of Jewish history, when you think of the Jewish religious system, and you think of the leaders of the Jewish people over the years, Jesus is never a factor, never a factor. And that's true in Israel, and that's true of Jewry outside of Israel. That would mean the, the Jewish people living outside of Israel. So what, what is said here is absolutely the case. It was the case then, and it's the case now. But what does it say? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Now that was the attitude. They Remember, they condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy. And when Jesus hung on the cross in the minds of those leaders, especially and many others, they he was under God's judgment. He was being smitten by God for his blasphemous claims. That's that's what they would say. And so that's the perspective of the people even to this very day. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so, wounded for our transgressions. And remember, as I said at the beginning, we're talking here about the doctrine, and this is where it's rooted, the penal substitutionary atonement. And so, he is wounded or crushed for our transgressions. He is bearing the punishment 
that our transgressions deserved. That's called penal substitutionary atonement. Now, I, I say that because there's a, in the what's called progressive Christian movement today, the progressive Christian movement today is just basically the old liberal Christianity that now just has a new name. And liberal Christianity, liberal not meaning like generous and you know, wanting to bless, liberal meaning denying the core doctrines and values of the faith. So amongst progressives today who are the new liberals, there is an absolute loathing of the idea that there was a penal substitutionary atonement, that, that God was punishing our sins when Jesus died on the cross. But it's inescapable. You have to just completely either you know, blot out large portions of scripture, or you just have to try to do your best to reinterpret them, uh, to, to not say what they obviously say. And, you know, I was thinking about this. Why, why is there such hostility against the, the idea of penal substitutionary atonement? And it's those who, who reject this doctrine who then would say they would accuse those who hold to the doctrine of believing in a God who is guilty of cosmic child abuse, Oh, you're, you're painting God to be a moral monster. God, you know, you're saying he took his son and he, he made him pay for other people's sins. And, and you're saying that there's a God who's going to make people pay for their sins. I think it's the, the, the hatred for penal substitutionary atonement lies in the fact that people do not want to believe in a God who will punish sin. That's really what it's all about. They want to believe in a God who's just, you know, God loves, love is love. We can do anything we want, be anything we want, live any way we want. And of course, because God is love, it's all going to be good. God's never going to judge anybody. There's no such thing as hell. There was no price to be paid for sin. That's all. They would even go so far as to say that was all borrowed from the pagan religions and so forth. They would say Paul invented that. They would say that's not the teaching of Jesus. So they, of course, in order to draw that conclusion, they have to conveniently bypass many of the things that Jesus said, like the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for sin. <laughs> so that kind of says the same thing Isaiah is saying here. Uh, and this is, this is what Paul taught. Paul developed all of this. And so they say, well, Paul made this up. This was his own religion from his a distorted understanding from God from his past. But actually, we are 700 years here in Isaiah before Paul ever was born. And so obviously, Paul did not make this up. If anybody made it up, it was Isaiah. <laughs> but yet, of course, I did. Isaiah didn't make it up either. This was the, the whole sacrificial system that was instituted by Moses was all about this very thing. An innocent, in this case, a lamb, was slain for the sins of the people. But they were all pointing further down the road to the one who could actually take away sin. Because as the, the letter to the Hebrews tells us, that the blood of bulls and goats could, could really never take away sin. They covered sin for a period of time, but they couldn't take it away. And so that was left for the work of the Messiah. But, but let's go on. 
And so he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. So the punishment that would result in our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. So clear. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who are we talking about? Well, so Isaiah is speaking on behalf of of his people. All we like sheep have gone astray. He's speaking on behalf of, of the nation of Israel. But of course, this is true of everybody, isn't it? All we like sheep have gone astray, uh, Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul builds this case marvelously in Romans chapter one through one and two and, and chapter three. So all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And, and that is basically the definition of sin. We have gone our own way. That's what sin is. It's to go our own way instead of God's way. And every one of us have gone our own way. And because of that, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, now why does God do this? If, if we like sheep have gone astray, if we've willingly turned everyone to his own way, why, why is God even bothering to try to bring us back to himself? And at such an extreme cost, well, the answer is love. God loves us. God loves all people. And of course, he could have just said, okay, you've gone astray and, and you've, you've committed high crimes and misdemeanors. You've sinned against me. And now I'm going to punish you for that. But God knows that the punishment for that was, would be our obliteration. And yet God loves humanity. And so rather than obliterating mankind, God says, I'm going to redeem, but I'm going to, I'm going to do so by paying the penalty. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some people say, well, why? I've, I heard somebody say this not too long ago. Well, well, why doesn't God just forgive? I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Why does he need a sacrifice? Why does he need to have Jesus pay for sins? He's God, right? Why can't he just say, okay, I forgive you? Well, because God is just. And if you think of a, of a judge... Now, let's just say you're, you're in a courtroom situation. You've got a person who's a criminal, a known criminal, a convicted criminal, committed heinous crimes, as a matter of fact. And you've got a judge and then the judge, uh, you know, the verdict is in, the person is guilty. And the, let's just say the recommendation is the death penalty. And the judge says, you know what? We're just going to let, we're going to let bygones be bygones. We're going to let, you know, the past be the past and we're, you know, we're, you're, you're free to go. Just, you know, try your best to not do it again. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see you later. Now for the criminal, of course, he would think, wow, this is amazing. You know, gosh, this judge is, a, is he's such a nice guy. He let me off the hook. Everybody else would be outraged. They would be completely outraged. What, what kind of justice is this? So he, he might've been a nice guy, the judge, but he was a horrible judge. We see God's a righteous judge. And so God cannot, because of who he is, because of his intrinsic justice, God cannot 
overlook sin. He can't just turn a blind eye to it. He can't just wink at it and say, hey, don't worry, we're going to be okay with that. No, it, it requires, just, just as no judge would be fit to be a judge who, who behaved in that way, so God, of course, could not be God if he were not just. And so there is a penalty that must be paid. But if I pay it, then I'm done. If you pay it, you're done. That's the payment. You, you just have forever and ever and ever trying to pay it, but never succeeding because you don't have the you don't have the ability to pay it. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He could pay it. The righteous one, Jesus, the one who did not sin, he is able to pay for the sins that we've committed. And so it goes on and it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And, and these are all the things, right, that happened to Jesus. I just finished reading uh, the Gospel of John. And there, of course, Jesus was before Pilate. And Pilate says, you know, don't you speak to me. I have the authority to, to crucify you or to set you free. And Jesus just says, well, you could have no authority over me at all unless it were given to you from heaven. But in, in those accounts, Pilate is marveling that Jesus is silent, that he's not defending himself. He's not crying out. He's led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And so he was slain. He was executed. He was cut off from the land of the living. And he was cut off for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. You can't get any clearer than that. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And so as as I was saying, we have sinned. All of us have sinned. And these sins have put us at odds with God. And God is a a righteous judge. And again, because of God's great love, he sent Christ who fully consented to the task of redemption. You see, we, you know, the, the people that say the idea that God punished Jesus on the cross for our sin is cosmic child abuse, you know, they're, they're just not reading their Bible clearly. The picture is, it's not like God uh, took and forced Jesus and Jesus is like a little kid and God saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to save these people. So I'm going to punish you. And I, I know you don't want this. That, that is not the picture at all. Uh, the picture is that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are going to redeem mankind. And this is how it's going to happen. The Son is going to come and he's going to defeat the powers of darkness. He's going to take the penalty of sin upon himself. He and the Father are going to work together along with the Holy Spirit for the redemption of the world. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. Forgiveness is such an important topic. We live in a world where there's little forgiveness today 
Forgiveness, of course, is something that we need to experience amongst ourselves as people. But, of course, the bigger issue is in our relationship with God. How do we obtain forgiveness? Timothy Keller has written an extraordinary book on the subject of forgiveness called Forgive, Why Should I, and How Can I? Unforgiveness can actually ruin a person's life. And this great book is so helpful in showing us how God has forgiven us and teaching us how we can forgive one another. So that's Timothy Keller, Forgive, Why Should I, and How Can I? Again, this month's resource is a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, A New Testament Theology for Real Life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. You can order the book 15 New Testament Words of Life by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I by Timothy Keller. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.